0: This is the Moocs and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. I hope you're having a wonderful September. This is Trevor. Hastily, Paul. Paul, let's hear from you really quick, please.
1: Yeah. Um. Uh, now. I'm, now I'm feeling a little uh, <laughs> flustered. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. How about okay.
0: That? That, that was great. And I wanted to, to just get you out of the way because we have a special guest today, and we want to slow down now. Yeah. Uh, Nora we are so excited to have you on our episode today to discuss a topic that you uh we brainstormed together but it was one that you uh presented and came up with and we've been polishing it up and excited to get forward on it we'll get to that in a minute but welcome to the show nora
2: hi thank you so much thank you so much for having me this is yeah this is so lovely um yeah it's nice to like to talk to you now
0: well, Nora, we have been excited to, to talk with you for a long time. I think you're one of the early people that we kind of put on a list of we want to ask Nora someday to, to jump on with us because we're you know we're friends on, on Twitter and on Instagram where you post not only lovely photos and reels, they're always so nice, and then on Sundays you do your uh, weekly book chat. And so I feel very fortunate to have you with us today. Is there anything that you, and and I better better say, uh, if you're okay with it, we will put in the show notes where to find you on Instagram and on Twitter and anywhere else that you would like people to find you, you know. Um, But is there anything else you'd like to say to help our listeners uh, get to know you just a little bit?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, first, yeah, thank you so much for for your kind words. And uh, yeah, I have uh, this Instagram or bookstagram, I guess you would call it, uh, that I started this year. Um, Yeah, during the pandemic, I started thinking that uh, I wanted to do something with books, um, because books and also book contents, your podcast and booktube have been such a comfort during those those weird times. And um, I've always been like a bookworm. But uh, there was like a dip in my reading just before the pandemic, and the pandemic sort of rekindled that. And um, yeah, I just felt like I wanted to do something a bit proactive, like an Instagram unboxed. And so this year in March, open I opened this account, and uh, it's mainly focused on women writers and uh, seasonal reading. I like to do those monthly. Mm. Um, recommendations of book sets in each month or each season. And then, as you said, on Sundays, I generally talk about uh, the books I read during the week.
0: And one of your recent uh, discussions, well, one of the books you recently read was uh, South Writing. Mm. How-
2: we could talk I, about it today, actually. <laughs> I
0: would, I, well, I'll, I won't spoil the episode. That's one that I think I mentioned to you in a comment. I told Nancy Pearl last year, oh, I'm going to read that one in the spring. And <laughs> then the spring came along. I still haven't done it yet. I've been saying that for, for years now that I want to read that one soon. And so, How I, close are you? i could I could start it today, but I probably won't It'll probably be sometime down the down the 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 tube still when we get to what have you been reading i i I put um some things in in front
1: of it that. It might be a while still, but... I saw that stack you posted on Instagram of what you're oh, reading right now. It seems like it might be a while. That was just for fun. I tried to pick oh, okay. some of the biggest
0: books that were just sitting out and throwing okay. them together. I was um, going to say, man,
1: Trevor got really ambitious.
0: Yeah, that's not my that's not my current reading. Some of it is, but some of it is not, so... <laughs> Um, But anyway, thanks so much for joining us, Nora. Um, We're looking forward to talking with you about Spinster Lit. Um, Before we get there, I do have just a few things of business to cover. Um, It's been a while since I have thanked people who have joined us on Patreon. Um, Paul, you and I have had a busy uh, last several months, so we actually haven't even published a bonus episode there. We're very sorry, but there are still people who have signed up um, that we need to thank. Uh, Patrick Preciosi. Uh, Patrick is uh, is a, a good friend as well. Uh, uh, a connection with McNally Editions. Thanks mm-hmm. so much for all that you do there. That's just one of our favorite uh, favorite presses uh, that we we brought up. Our, do you remember Paul? Is one of the things we were looking forward to in 2022 was their initial run of titles, and it's just I do. the the promise has been fulfilled and exceeded. Of what I was going to say, yeah, it's forward. been everything
1: we've wanted and more for sure. <laughs>
0: Um, Nafisa, uh, I don't have a last name, but Nafisa, thank you so much for, for your support, uh, Cindy Evans, Kevin Adams, and, uh, most recently Barbara Vandersvog. Um, I apologize if I'm saying any of those names wrong, if it's not Kevin, but it's Kaveen or, you know, <laughs> Kate Kaven. Now that one I think was an easy one, but Barbara, your last name, I probably said it wrong. And Patrick, I may have even said your, your last name. Uh, incorrectly as well. But we very much appreciate the support and we are getting in the works of putting together some more bonus content. That may be something that we, we mostly do during the uh, you know quote unquote school year. Mm, <laughs> it's right. harder during the summer to, to, to do those, but maybe we need to figure that out as well. Um, but thanks so much for your support. And uh, why don't we get on to uh, what have you been reading? Paul, if you don't mind, do you mind if we start with Nora
1: to hear what she's been reading? No, or would you I think like to jump in? Okay, goodness. Yeah, this <laughs> time I'll let Nora go first, I guess. Thanks. Right. <laughs> uh,
2: so, what have I been reading? Um, so, with my Instagram at the minute, we have like a little um, event uh, to do with Spinster Lit uh, called Spinster September. So, I've been knee deep sorry, in Spinster Lit uh, this week to sort of get prepared. So, uh, I finished this week as The Rector's Daughter by F.M. Mayor. I don't know if any of you have read it. Not
0: read it. Mm-hmm. No.
2: Um, but yeah, it's it's about a spinster, a 35-year-old woman. She's, third, uh, she's uh, a vicar's daughter. Uh, her name is Mary Jocelyn and she lives in the countryside and she has this very quiet life and uh, she's Kind of bullied by her father, is like an, an old man in, in his eighties, and you know he has his ways, and there's no other way. So she's sort of meekly following him and doing his bids, and she's also giving Bible class and women meetings in the village. So she's quite active in the village, and yeah, it's a it's a look into um, that kind of life, spinster, and it's set in the twenties. Uh, yeah, clergymen's daughters. Uh, it's a big subject in spinsterless, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
2: yeah, and uh, yeah, it was, how did it, you? Oh, sorry, ahead. I was just going to say it was a. It, it kind of broke me. It was a really sad book, but uh, a <laughs> very, very beautiful nature writing. Very evocative as well.
1: Ooh. Sounds that good. Sounds to really you. good. How do you track down books like those that are maybe not as well known? Is, is it mostly just through online connections and things like that, or? Do you have a source that you go to for these types of books?
2: Oh, um, well, specifically for spinster lit, I think Virago, the modern classics have been mm. a great source. Uh, but blogs as well, such as the one from uh, Simon Thomas and Jackie and mm. also are a great source. And Persephone yeah. yeah, like those kind of specialized uh, presses. Yeah.
0: And I'll put, I'll try to track each of these down. Like you mentioned, Simon and Jackie, they've both been guests on our, on our show, Um, Mm -hmm. but their, their blogs are, are wonderful resources. So I'll put those in the show notes as well. Uh, Just so, so our listeners know they can go there to find
1: them. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And, uh, and yeah, that, that I've finished that one and I'm currently, I just started actually uh, uh, started and think excellent women by barbara pym which is also about a clergyman's daughter but much (laughs) more lighter and humorous in tone (laughs) thank god
0: (laughs) i read that one a couple of years ago and just just loved it so yeah
1: exciting yeah you're in for a treat with that one for sure we
0: probably could i don't think any of us chose a barbara pym novel at least as our you know initials and such that we'll bring up later on but Maybe we, should, we could call this like the Barbara Pym or Anita Bruckner memorial list. Exactly. You know, they, they, they sit on, on all, of, all of our thoughts as we, as we
1: discuss uh, Spinster Lit. We mentioned both of them uh, pretty much every episode anyways. So right. I <laughs> think that's just a given.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say like for, for an episode about Spinster Lit, it's has been insane that nobody, none of us have picked her. Yeah. But I'm, yeah. I'm new to her. It's my first one.
0: It's probably because, like, I probably would have, but we did just do our episode on Barbara Pym, mm-hmm. and yeah, she does come up quite often. So I was like, well, maybe I should force myself to, to not just pick the first one that comes to mind and, and see what else what else shows up. But, but that's exactly. exciting. I hope I, I I look forward to hearing. I assume you'll talk about that over the coming month, is on your book chats and on Instagram and such. So I'm excited yeah. to hear about it.
1: I'm too. Paul, how about you? Ready for me? Yeah. So, you know, I enjoyed getting back to the American West, you know, reading about that so much when I was reading Centennial, which I talked about a little bit in our last episode over the past few weeks. So I was inspired to reread um, a book, The Sun by Philip Meyer. I don't know mm-hmm. if either one of you have read that one. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize back in 2014. And it's been probably about since that time that I read it. And, you know, I think about it every once in a while and I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind reading a little bit more about you know that whole time period. So, uh, the book kind of alternates between three different characters, um, each one from a different generation of the McCullough family. So Eli McCullough is kind of the patriarch of the family. He's a really tough and brutal man, um, and his story starts back in 1849 when he is kidnapped by some Native Americans who kind of raid his area and, and kill his family. And so he's taken prisoner along with his brother and ends up becoming a slave and and living with that community. Um, And then it goes on from there in his storyline. And then the next narrator is his son, Peter McCullough. And his section is set a little bit later in the early 1900s. And he is very, very different from his father. He has gone a very different path. um, And it kind of follows him as he's trying to deal with really brutal treatment of the Mexican um, families that are living in the area at that time. So that has some echoes of Cormac McCarthy. Um, and then we skip ahead to 2012, where Eli's great granddaughter and then Peter's granddaughter, Jean Ann McCullough, um, the section focuses on her, and she's an aging, wealthy um, oil baroness. So it kind of rotates through these three, every chapter, and it gives a really interesting perspective of, of the West because you'll jump ahead, you know, by. Thirty or fifty years at different times, and kind of see how the tone has changed and how you know interactions between the different people who live in that area have changed. Um, but I mentioned Cormac McCarthy; it definitely has some of those vibes with kind of the unflinching looks at the violence and brutality that took place during that time. Um, and it, you know, so often the American West is romanticized, but I think there's been this movement back towards showing some of the harsh realities of what actually happened. Um, so it's not always easy reading, but it's really well done. I just thought I'd read a really quick section. It's between Peter, who I mentioned is, is the son who's a little bit, um, more, I don't know, progressive, I guess, for the time than his dad. And it's the two of them and they're out. And the dad says, I remember when a five shot Colt was a weapon of mass destruction. Then you had maybe 20 years and there was a Henry rifle loaded on Sunday and shoot it all week. 18 shots. I think life gets better and better. I said. You know, I always thought those books would take you somewhere. I was sad when they didn't. They have, I said. I mean away from here. You think I don't sabe, but I do. My brother was exactly like you. It runs in the family. I shrugged. Wrong place, wrong time. Wrong something. I like this family, and I like this place, I told him, because for some reason at that moment it seemed true. He started to say something, then didn't. As we rode back through the sun and the dust toward our great white house on its hill, he seemed to relax, to settle into his saddle. I could tell his mind was wandering doubtless over many things he had done for which the entire world admires him. I began to think of how often he was home during my childhood, never, my mother making excuses for him. So maybe that'll give you just a little bit of a a glimpse into the, the dialogue and these complicated relationships. That was just a short excerpt, but later on in that chapter, it goes on to talk about, you know, how the dad thought that his books would take him away from all this, but he says, you know, basically, you know, he still finds a place there, but he also feels this conflict about, you know, he, he is reading all these classics and different things and seeing that there's more to life. And I think that kind of helps him see some of the brutality and different things that are going on. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting perspective when you get on to the, the granddaughter, you know, she is a, like I said, a wealthy oil baroness and she has some very conservative views that are like reflected in the modern times that maybe are going back to more, you know, the grandfather's point of view. So it just shows all the different ways that time and circumstances can shape people in a family and, and how complicated life can be. So yeah, it's been nice to revisit that one and I'm looking forward to wrapping it up maybe in the next couple of days.
0: Nice. I did read that one when it came out and I thought it was an excellent, excellent mm-hmm. book.
1: Yeah. Apparently it's part of a trilogy, which I've never tracked down. I think it's the middle one of a trilogy. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'll be inspired one of these days and check <laughs> out the other two.
0: Well, So I I did let Paul know already, everybody, but I finished Lonesome Dove and thought it was fantastic. Um, And I told Paul, I really don't think he'll be disappointed if he does watch the television miniseries with Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall and uh, Diane Lane, you know, just playing these great roles. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see, Paul. We'll I'm okay see. if you don't do it. I understand. Nah. Um, but I think you'll be you'd be like, this is a nice way to remember and refresh my recollection of these books and such. But anyway, so I did finish that and I've done something very foolish, maybe it could end up being brilliant, but um I told uh my wife that I'm gonna do War and Peace finally and that I need to do it in Anthony Briggs translation after Crispia's leaf by leaf uh video inspired that. And so she got it for me in that nice penguin heart, you know, cloth bound hardback mm, um yeah. edition. And I realized if I don't just start it, it'll always sit there as something I'm gonna start soon. You know, speaking of South Writing. <laughs> um uh so I finally did sit down and start it. But I also got from LiveWrite, you know, the, the publisher with with kind of subsidiary of Norton. Mm-hmm. Uh, their new translation by Michael R. Cates of the Brothers Karamazov. And so I did start both of these. It's kind of stupid to do that, but I thought if I don't do it again, they're both going to sit there looking at, they're the ones I want to read right now of these big ones. So, But I am mm-hmm. regimenting myself. I'm not, um, I'm not, wanting them to be the only things I read for the next, you know, eight, nine months.
1: <laughs> um, i glad you didn't say years. I thought you were going to say years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've only done that with one book. Uh, <laughs> uh, the rest of them I tend to finish sooner. Uh, but I am very excited. And both of them have been going down really well. I, I It's so cool to get back to the Brothers Karamazov after over 20 years and realize how much I'm enjoying it uh, wow. and how much I remember of that first read through, in terms of just oh, I remember that feeling. I remember how awful the dad is, you know, and how mm-hmm. the, the descriptions of him are. Um, but the one that I I started yesterday, in order to uh, follow along with a read along, and because it's the first Virginia Woolf novel uh, published, but also that I need to read for my kind of reread through her work, is one I've never read. It's The Voyage Out. I've always been a little bit Wary of it, thinking, "Oh, this is her first novel. She only, you know, hits her stride a little bit with Jacob's room. She's still experimenting with that. And while I like Jacob's room, it's, you know, Mrs. Dalloway to the mm-hmm. lighthouse, the waves that really gets me going. So I've always kind of thought maybe I'll never read this one. It's really good. I, it's nice. a lot more straightforward and clear than I thought it might be. Uh, but it's really good. I don't, I don't even." think i really know anything about the book itself i just started it to keep on on schedule uh, dorian alerted me to it on august 31st and you know today's uh, september 2nd so i started it yesterday because they started it yesterday and so i just grabbed it and started uh but i've been really delighted the, the the start is just um some people coming together and getting onto a boat leaving london behind a little bit trepidatious you know the 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 woman thinking about her kids that she's leaving behind. Her husband's clearly a little snobby. <laughs> and I think they're going to South America. Uh, but I really liked this quote from the first little bit when they're on the, the boat leaving, uh, you know, the, floating down the Thames. It says, winding veils round their heads, the women walked on deck. They were now moving steadily down the river, passing the dark shapes of ships at anchor, and London was a swarm of lights with a pale yellow canopy drooping above it. There were the lights of the great theatres, the lights of the long streets, lights that indicated huge squares of domestic comfort, lights that hung high in air. No darkness would ever settle upon those lamps, as no darkness had settled upon them for hundreds of years, It seemed dreadful that the town should blaze forever in the same spot, dreadful at least to people going away to adventure upon the sea, and beholding it as a circumscribed mound, eternally burnt, eternally scarred. From the deck of the ship the great city appeared a crouched and cowardly figure, a sedentary miser. It's like that sense of leaving, you know, something that may have been a little bit, it sounds like maybe a a little bit oppressive (laughs) from the the minds of these these, uh, people and these women in particular, Uh, leaving it behind and going out into the darkness to something a lot uh, less uh, understood. And, you know, again, I don't know what's coming, but Mm. I'm excited for it. So, yeah,
1: that's beautiful. I really like that. Is that a longer book or not too long?
0: It is a longer one. I think that's another reason. If it if it were just a short debut, I'd be like, oh, that's, right. I can deal with that. But I think it's 350, 400 pages, um, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. But yes. I, I'm now very encouraged. And no, I have the whole month, and it's it's only like eight or nine pages a day that they're taking it. And that just seems to fit into my otherwise very crowded reading schedule. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say it's not like you have anything else going on in your reading <laughs> life right now, because so, you're still doing the journals too, right? Uh,
0: yes, but that I take a break in those um, mm. with the Virginia Woolf journals is what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I take a break once I get to the kind of the publication date. Oh, okay. Um, so I am up to the Voyage Out. Um, read the first, you know, little like two months of her journal in in 1915, and then the Voyage Out comes out. So i I'm, I'm I'm where I need to be. But I was I was holding back until Dorian uh, just knew just knew I needed a push. So right.
2: <laughs> it's funny you mentioned it because uh, just before the episode, I was just like scrolling through as uh, Prince titles and all that, and the voyage out was mentioned because apparently there's some ants that are spinsters. I don't know if you came across them.
0: I've been wondering um, if that might be a relevant book just based on what I what I read yesterday and the, the, the glimpse I got this morning. I was like, I wonder if this will, you know, develop into something where this would be a relevant book for that. So, mm. but n- I'm not there yet to where I'd understand how they all play together.
2: That reminded me that in the what was that, in Mrs. Dalloway, which is the only oh no, the other I, I read only Two Wolf, but uh, yeah, there is also an a spinster in Mrs. Dalloway, the the teacher who's German, I think, or
1: mm. I.
0: I've, it's been a while since I read Mrs Dalloway, and so I I remember that now. Though I remember a German teacher. Mm, so.
2: Yeah, I think she was Austrian. Yeah. Well, so maybe so, that's the thing in Wolf. Does she like talking about but She's not an author I know very well, to be honest.
0: She has, the, and they they sent, they tend to be people on the periphery. You know, mm-hmm. people in the family that come to these gatherings, and and have maybe maybe their eccentricities or at least things that others don't understand. Uh, she does often have uh, often have a spinster and this is a good transition. So Mm -hmm. Nora, you, um, are doing a spinster lit for September on Instagram and you have a post a few weeks ago, or maybe it was even a month ago, uh, talking about it, but also what, why you love spinster lit. It can feel—I don't know—maybe this is just me. It can feel like a bit of a derogatory term.
1: Mm. It doesn't
0: have to be. Um, but what does it mean to you? Like, what what pulls you in? I thought you articulated something so well in your Instagram post. Uh, but what what about spinster lit uh, is uh, appealing? Maybe the wrong word, but uh, uh, draws you in. Uh, well, if
2: I if I can. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, about the derogatory term, I think maybe there's uh, like a, a distinction we can make in sort of a historical meaning of spinster and maybe a more modern way of using spinster. I think um, th- this conversation we've been having online has been really interesting To during that spinster September event. People have come to me and we've sort of started talking about what a spinster is um, nowadays. And I think... In English, the word is quite an interesting one because it comes from the, like, the role that women who didn't have children, they would like spin wool. And there's something quite proactive about it. It's like a a tangible role, And I think in that, because that word has such a, I think, a a sort of positive early meaning, I think there's a way to rebrand that term today and be it something positive instead of you know that sort of frumpy dumpy spinster we can um, encounter in lit- like in older literature but um for me um the 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 personal connection i have with spinsterlets is something um that sort of started in my late 20s as i you know as i was gonna like turn 30 i got like quite anxious about <laughs> turning 30 and I, I don't know if you do that, but I tend to sort of look at people who are older than me to get a sense of where things are going. And I felt like one of the messages of women in their 30s was that things would get better and uh, you'd get more confident and your priorities change and you, know, you feel better in your body, in your mind, etc., etc. Fast forward a few years into my thirties, I didn't feel that way at all, and I kind of, <laughs> I kind of look more closely in those, um, in those voices, in those women's messages, and I often uh, noticed that those women were often in, like early motherhood or in the honeymoon period of a relationship. Not that I'm saying that motherhood is a work in the park, but for for people who. This experience is positive i think they're quite vocal about it and obviously has a positive impact on their life so it kind of made me think that i need to target a bit more what kind of voice older voices i need uh, to look for and look into women who decided to have a path of not having a child because yeah it's that's something that's always been clear to me and i should have said that in, in the beginning but i i, I never was attracted to um, being a mother and um, so I kind of felt like motherhood back then felt like a choice that nobody could regret so how could I feel that myself how, what kind of choice can I make that I couldn't regret and that, that put a lot of pressure on my on my on my shoulders and uh, I felt like okay no I need to chill out and just see what people do generally and um, if I can make an aside I feel like the the conversation around motherhood has changed quite a bit. It's getting a lot more nuanced and talked about. I'm not saying that people are saying that they regret having children, but they're they're, they're having more conversation about um, maybe it's a lifestyle they didn't expect, or things are not the, the way they yeah they imagined, and it's harder than they thought. And I think because that conversation is getting more nuanced, I feel um. On my part, as somebody who decided not to be a mother, I feel like the conversation about the childless a childless lifestyle is also getting more nuanced. So I'm wondering now, you know, if I'd turned 30 today, if I'd been attracted to spinsterlet as much as I would have, uh, as had been, um, you know, years ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so um, I got to spinsterlet. I, I can't really tell you what was the the trigger, but I found out I started looking around, and I felt like mainly the the voices from spinsters were, or the disc, like, rather the, the description of spinsters in fiction, in films, and all that were like it'd be caricatural women who mm-hmm. live with cats and you know die alone. And it was quite sad. So I found, like quite hard to find positive lifestyle, uh, positive voices around that lifestyle, and I. I don't know, one thing leading to another, I found out about the interwar and how, you know, there were surplus women after the war, not finding husband because, you know, they've been killed in the war. And, ha- you know, having to have this huge lifestyle change where they have to join the, the workforce and finding a new a new way of living without a family. And I, when I found out about that, you know, that period and that literature coming out of that period, I really felt... I had to find the source I was looking for. These were the voices I needed. Um, and I think outside of their lifestyle of choice, I feel like there's a bridge between the interwar and the times we're living now. Like for them following the war and also living the rise of fascism and all that, it was quite a, a like a turbulent peri- period of time. and for women it was also very turbulent on a, like for for like, on a personal level because they were joining the workforce and they were trying to find ways to to live differently as you know the people before them did and now i can't say that i can't really think of something as major as joining the workforce um there's not like such a change now but i think there are there are conversations following um the me too movement and Uh, stuff like consent, sexual expression, sexual roles, uh, gender expression, gender roles uh, that are quite um, affecting, I think. And I do feel, like I said, there's like a bridge between interwar and now as a woman where I feel like we're both on um, unstable grounds in a way. Wow.
0: I love that, Nora. And thanks for all of the, the... There's a lot there to that, that we could uh, revisit and kind of uh, give some thoughts to. I, I like that you're talking about recapturing the, the idea of a spinster. Mm. Um, because, yeah, uh, you know, it can be looked at as this is someone who was unfortunate. Um, right. Their life didn't work out. The way that it was supposed to because that naturally everybody has this goal as uh, you know as a as a woman uh potentially you know and and the the stereotypical idea of them with cats like you say or you know that's their companionship they were they were unlucky um maybe because of lack of fortune maybe um unlucky in in their attractiveness or maybe they're too meek um and they would jump at any chance and the thing that I think is so interesting is all the books that I've been thinking about with this, how many of them are from women who are caught up in that trap of self perception as well. Hmm. The, you know, I'm thinking uh, not one that I put on my list, but um, Anita Bruckner's book, Providence. Um, uh, uh, several of her books have someone who is an older woman, who feels this way about herself? I was unfortunate. I didn't get my chance. When will it come along? And they, they view themselves entirely negatively, uh, even though they, they shouldn't be. But um, Providence, in particular, you know, that the Providence is will a man save me? You know, where's my Savior um, from this life that was not what I always thought I should live? It's not the life I had planned out when I was a kid reading stories. You know, thinking of even "Look at Me," her first novel, mm-hmm. um, reading stories about Cinderella going to the ball and finding her man, and this never materialized for me. What is wrong with me? Uh, but I love that there are have also been um, several books that I've um, looked at that aren't. Maybe they're still dealing with that idea, you know, the pressure that society puts on on us uh, to to live up to certain expectations and, and roles and the the guilt and such that can come. But there are a lot of books that I think also just have women looking for other things. You, you, you put it in a, I thought the way you put it in your post um, from August 15th was really good that you're uh, you love reading about women and the way they fill their time and find purpose outside of matrimony and motherhood. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I want to make sure that, that we, that this is portrayed here you know that this can be a a deliberate choice it can be something that is uh, in yeah. fact often is something that's not negative um and that could be um empowering and strengthening and and there's so much you know to explore with all of this so
1: <laughs> yeah no that's really good i mean i i went th- through a similar cycle where I was kind of trying to think of which books I'd want to cover today and thinking about the negative stereotypes that you both mentioned. And one thing that I came across is something that Nora alluded to was kind of this retaking of the word spinster and the interest that has arisen in recent years about kind of recapturing that term and redefining it. Because even on like Goodreads, for example, you'll find lists and lists of spinster lit and some of them are Romances, some of them are best books for happy spinsters, you know, so there's like this idea of not only a renewed interest in the idea of what it is and kind of looking at the different wrinkles or aspects of what that term means, but also people kind of recapturing it and redefining it like you can be happy. and and be a spinster, quote unquote, for example. And I don't know if either one of you came across, there's a piece by Camilla Nelson that had some really interesting perspectives. And she said, one of the things that you touched on, Trevor, um, spinsters are rarely the protagonists in the English novel. So historically, they were always kind of these satellite characters who, you know, it was like the kind of eccentric old aunt who plays like a minor role. You know, you see that even in Jane Austen and some of the other ones, but she also goes through and It's kind of a lighthearted look, but she talks about some of the different stereotypes, the spinster grotesque, which is like Miss Havisham, the prattler, the hysteric, the pseudo spinster, the new spinster. And so she kind of goes through this evolution of like, even within the stereotypes, there are some different nuances of, you know, she doesn't say the crazy cat lady, but I'm sure that, you know, that falls under one of those. But it's just interesting to see people kind of delving in and finding the nuances of historically what it's meant but then the new spinster she starts to kind of allude to how it's changing and there's this redefinition going on so yeah i'm really glad that you picked this topic it was really fascinating Nora, just to kind of go down the yeah. rabbit trail a little bit
2: you two make me want to talk about the um like the 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 types of spinsters i've came across and i kind of Written along a list of like types I've seen. I mean, I've I've not read a lot, but in the in the in the books I've come across. Uh, but yeah, just before that, I just wanted to ask you uh, what what's your like? Do you feel any connections to, to the subject? And uh, what's your like? How do you connect to spinster lit yourself? If I'm not putting you on the spot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can jump in real quickly and just say again. This is somewhat playing off of the older stereotype. So again, this is an evolving topic, but I would say one of the things that has historically drawn me to it is Trevor and I have talked for years now about quiet lives, lonely lives, people who sometimes feel like they're on the outside looking in. So for me, that's kind of an instant connection. Like, you know, just the fact that we can all relate, no matter what point of life we're in or or what our relationship status is or whatever, we can all relate to that feeling of of either loneliness or you know, having time to, like you said, to fill and, and to take that time and choose to do what you want to with it. But also, you know, again, historically, a lot of these women were on the outside or felt like they were on the outside looking in. And I think for anyone, but especially for readers, that's often, you know, something that you can connect with of that feeling of, you know, maybe many of us were shy children who would be reading in the corner while everybody else was playing or just things like that. So for me, that's one of the connections that I would bring up. And also just the fact my love of classics you know, whether it's Jane Austen or the Brontes or, you know, Thomas Hardy or all these people down through the years, I think there's a connection there as well, just because often there are those characters who could be defined as spinsters within some of these books that I've loved from, you know, the very beginning of my reading time.
0: Yeah. And I think, Paul, you said it very well. And I would, a lot of what you said resonated with me as to why I feel the attraction. But I think a part of mine too, is a desire to recalibrate my own mentality you know, I grew up in a small community where these were the expectations and, uh, you know, the prejudices that can grow up uh, in those types of, of areas with someone that you think, oh, they never, they never have gone out on a date or they're going to end up single. And in my community, it was very religious, where that was kind of the end goal is to get married and start a family. And so in a desire to kind of take, take that apart a little bit and see it differently. And sometimes it's that moment of self-recognition or maybe not self-recognition so much as a realization that I've never given some things thought that I should. Um, for example, reading Barbara Pym's Excellent Women and realizing what she means by that title I don't know if you're there yet Nora I don't want to spoil it for you but uh,
2: literally after chapter 1 so <laughs> I, I don't
0: I don't think this will spoil it but it's an interesting phrase because that's the 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 words being used to describe these women that everybody else thinks are always available to help because they don't have these other obligations, they don't have a family, they don't have a, you know this, that, or the other. They're looking for things. So why don't we go and give them the things we want done? You know, why don't they prepare the the banquet for the church social? Why don't they come and volunteer their time at this, that, or the other? And you know, these are the excellent women. Our, our our society could not function but for these excellent women. And. I I love being able to, to recognize some of those ideas that, you know, even if they're not things that I've ever, I, I feel like been explicitly thinking, or, you know, not been in those positions where I think I'm like the vicar <laughs> who wants to use these, these women for the, the various purposes, but just realizing that, man, b- breaking out of it and starting to to recognize the damage that this can do, and the um, the lives that are underneath all of that, because that's so um, emptying of purpose to think that if you don't have these normal social um, roles, we're going to give you others than we are we're going to be the ones who supply you with things to do because you, you simply must need our assistance still. It's uh, so I, I've loved being able to, to, I think in a way, um, break some of this down. And it has been over years, you know, with, with like uh, Simon um, Thomas and, and uh, Thomas who, on the readers, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, uh, Hugglestock, you know, Hogglestock would bring up quite often, um, spinster uh, yeah. lit and his love of kind of getting to know these women and their their desires, their lives, their anxieties that are often brought on because of the way they feel they might be failing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's those kinds of things have been really uh, eye opening to me in a way that I hope has helped me be a, a have a richer understanding of of life and of people around me, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's a good good. question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, if you, if you want to go back to the uh, types of spinsters, I don't know if that's something you've sort of formalized in your heads, but yeah, I feel for me, there's like several types of spinsters I've came across in literature and the one I'm always looking for is the independent spinster. I've only like, I've only like, two and actually I'm going to talk uh, about both of them uh, today Uh, but yeah it's the spinster who is not so much wears her spinsterhood as a badge of honor but honor sorry but she she she's at peace with it she she wants to move forward and make uh, something out out of her life and find meaning and purpose and I find that she's yeah that type of spinster in literature is, is for me at least is uh, hard to find, and I'm curious of the titles you'll pick. I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of hoping there'll be that kind of, of spinster, but otherwise, there's also the the one we talked about, the sort of meek spinster, the the frumpy, dumpy, the mousy-haired spinster, the one that just is being trampled over by everyone, and uh, and then you have, you also have the queer spinster, the one who couldn't mm-hmm. express. Their sexuality. So, that label in in and of itself was spinster is obviously wrong, but she was per- perceived by society as a spinster. Mm-hmm. And finally, you have the romantic spinster. The I think Anita Bruckner does great romantic spinsters, the one who has a longing for a relationship. She's not happy with a spinsterhood. She wants to get out of that status ASAP. And um, yeah, so yeah, there's that type, or the one who's longing for a child, obviously.
1: Yeah, those are great. I think in our conversation about the books, a few of those might come up because, yeah, it was one of the things I was trying to do, like Trevor mentioned, to we could go back to some of our defaults that we talk about all the time. And I would love to talk about them for, you know, entire episodes, but it is fun to kind of try to look at some different angles. And I think a few of the ones you mentioned will come up somewhat in the books that I talk about today. So,
0: yeah, me too. Should we get to the books? That'll help. Uh, I think we, we may as well, and that'll keep broadening the yeah. the
1: thing a little bit. Paul, why don't you go ahead and then okay. I'll go and then Nora, you can, you can close us out. Sure. So I'll kick off. This is a book that I talked about. I've, I've probably talked about it numerous times cause I love it so much, but I know that I talked about it on our episode about, um, people who are aging or, or people who are getting older and it's the lonely passion of Judith Hearn by Brian Moore. Um, this is a book I absolutely adore. It was one of the very first NYRB classics that I ever read. Um, and it was also my first book ever by Brian Moore, who is an author that I have since read several more and really loved. And I look forward to reading you know, the rest of his catalog over time. But in many ways, this is a book of the three that I chose. This probably is the closest to falling on the negative stereotypes that we've talked about. You know, the darker sides of the ideas of being a spinster. Um as you can gather from the title, you know, she is not a happy person. There's a lot of loneliness in this book. Um, and it takes place in Belfast in the 1950s and centers around the titular character who she's just moved into this kind of shabby boarding house and she's just trying to get her bearings and, and looking around her new room and meeting the other lodgers there. And so as we get to know her, we get these glimpses over the course of the book into her history and realize that she has some things, some you know, alcoholism and other issues that she's dealing with in her life. Um, so just as I was looking through the reviews and descriptions, I saw it described as, quote, a sensitive study of a middle-aged alcoholic woman in drab Belfast and her desperate last attempts at finding love and companionship. So again, that falls into kind of one of those maybe stereotypes, or at least the more traditional views of what a spinster means. And then Um, Anne Leary of NPR said it's, quote, a short book about a lifetime of longing. Um, So I'll just read a couple of quick sections to give people an idea of um, of what's going on in this book. But he's really good at capturing the loneliness and the emptiness of her days. So there's a section that says there was no hurry. Friday, a dull day, a day with nothing at all to do, although it would be interesting at breakfast to see what sort of food Mrs. Henry Rice gave and who the others were. She lay abed twenty minutes, then washed in cold water and went shivering to the mean heat of the stove. She slipped on her under things under the concealing envelope of her nightgown, a habit picked up at the Sacred Heart convent in Armagh and so you know it gives like this idea of, of the the hours you know she's she's lonely, she wakes up, she can just lay there in bed because she doesn't have a whole lot going on. But then there are these other sections where she is, um, you know, getting ready, and she's she's brushing her hair in front of the mirror, and she's looking at herself. And this is one of the times when Brian Moore does some really fascinating things with memories. As she's sitting there, kind of methodically brushing her hair, you could, she starts to drift back, and you get some backstory into ways that um, you know she has kind of become who she is. So said, she watched the glass, a plain woman changing all to the delightful illusion of beauty. There was still time for her ugliness was destined to bloom late. Hidden first by the uniformed gawkiness of youth, budding to plainness in young womanhood, and now flowering to slow maturity in her early forties, it still awaited the subtle garishness, garishness which only decay could bring to fruition. A garishness which, when arrived at, would preclude all efforts at the mirror game. And so it's it's a very sad book again, like because she's dealing with alcoholism and loneliness, and she's, Sitting there, thinking, kind of what we were talking about, like I've missed my chance. Um, so again, this is one that I wouldn't say is one of the ones that Nora is seeking out for, you know, the the more positive spin. But at the same time, it does to me capture a, a chunk of humanity. It doesn't have to be a spinster. It's somebody who is in a rough spot in her life and is trying to make the best of it. So there's something admirable to me about it, even though there's a lot of sadness. So I'll just close out really quickly. We mentioned Jackie Wine a lot on here, but she summed up this book very nicely back on her blog in 2018, and she called it an outstanding novel, probably one of my top three for the year, but it's also a devastating read. The characterization is truly excellent, from the nuanced portrait of Judith, complete with all her flaws and complexities, to the immoralities of James Madden and Bernard Rice. It's also beautifully written, a heartbreaking paean to the loneliness of a life without love. So again, I thought I'd start off with one that was a little bit more of the the classic negative view, but at the same time, it's just an achingly beautiful book. I love it. So that's my first one.
0: All right. And I have, I've read that one uh, again, based solely on the cover from NYRB. Classics, yeah, that's right. I purchased mm-hmm. it. <laughs> it's gorgeous. The one that I'm going to bring up first is one that I don't know if, you know, looking up reviews and such, no one ever calls this character a spinster. She's just referred to as a single woman. Um, mm. In her, I think she's in her forties. Uh, but it's uh, Jehopa Lahiri's whereabouts. Paul, mm. I was. Uh, did this one come to mind at all for you?
1: You know, it didn't. But now that you say it, it should have. That's great. I'm so glad you brought it up.
0: And I think part of it's because she's not presented as someone pining or she's lonely. But it's it's a deliberate isolation. Um, and so again, I'm trying to think of that stereotype. What do we think of when we think of spinster, uh, versus just a single woman, um, who is a little you know, is, is deliberate in, in her, her life. In fact, this is one where as, as she's going through, it's a, it's a short book in short sections of, um, this woman, we don't know her name, who is, uh, single and deliberately so, and is, uh figuring out her way around the city in Rome where she's always lived um, and then uh, trying to perfect her solitude. In fact, this is what she says, says, solitude, it's become my trade as it requires a certain discipline. It's a condition I try to perfect. And so she thinks of the, the, her routines. And I, I really, I, I, I really enjoyed this book. There's a power to it of, of her, looking at where she's at. And again, I guess trying to perfect this condition that she has, she has chosen. Um, and again, I thought it was an interesting thing. I can't probably get too more, much more specific to it, but every review, uh, just refers to her as a single woman, um, because spinster doesn't tend to leap to mind that term um, even though it should apply and especially if we're trying to kind of recalibrate what it means or re, re you know, grab on, uh, change the definition. Um, mm-hmm. this is a, a book about a spinster, uh, who is happily so and has a deep interior life and other thoughts than what, uh you know we might think a a spinster should be thinking about you know she's not trying to go and find her her husband she's not wishing that she had um she just is and it's a it's a great little book so
1: it is a great book have you read that one Nora because that one would be no
2: actually it's a I think it's you Paul who brought up that or Mm -hmm. wrote that uh, author's name on my radar because you you talked about her quite a few times on the On a podcast, and I I think, yeah, in the context of her, is she like of immigrant descent, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, 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 I feel like a
2: couple of things you said about some books you read that really resonated with me. And I've been like keeping an eye out because I'm generally when I buy books, I'm thrifting, so it's it's left up to chance. But it's not an author you find here at all, so I think I'm gonna have to actually Mm. buy it from a shop like a big girl.
1: Yeah. Well, if you do, I'd love to hear your thoughts, because as Trevor just said, I think that one could at least tick some of the boxes of what you described as.
2: Yeah, it sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for. I think those books where there's no label of spinsters are actually the most interesting one because they're not defined by the spinsterhood. They're just humans trying Mm -hmm. to live, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. What's your first book, Nora?
2: Oh, yeah, my turn. (laughs) Um, So my first book is um, Lolly Willows by Sylvia Tansen warner I mean, I had to mention her. I know she's a bit of a cliche in the spinster lit, but uh, for me, she is the absolute blueprint of what I'm looking for in a spinster character in in literature. And um, I don't know if it's useful that I give a little summary. I feel like everybody's read Lolly Willows, right? I don't know.
1: Probably, I, but I don't think a summary would hurt. I haven't yet, just oh. so you
2: know. What? But I'm looking forward I'm to sorry. it. No, no, you, you have to scrap all your car off and all that. You read Lolly Willow's book. <laughs> All
0: right. I'll throw all the other stuff away <laughs> yes. for the time being. <laughs> oh,
2: so, yeah, just for you then, Trevor. So um, Lolly Willow, is, it's a book that was written in 1926 by, as I said, Sylvia Townsend Warner. And it's about this woman um who's lived all her life in the in somerset in the countryside in the uk she lives with her father she's been taking care of her father and you get the sense that she has a deep connection with nature and plants and the use of plants and all that but unfortunately her dad dies when she's 28 and she's not married she doesn't she hasn't ever expressed a desire for marrying or anything, and as such, she became the charge of her brother because a woman who's alone is not proper, right? So she has to move to London and live with a brother who has, uh, I think, a couple of uh, girls, and she she's in, involved in their uh, upbringing. And for twenty years, she's gonna, you know, take care of those those girls and you know be part of the family. And then twenty years pass, and she's uh, she's now forty-seven, and she she realized that she has no use as a as a carer of these children anymore. they are grown up, and it's time for her to live her life. But she's not quite sure what it means. And you go along with her in these big walks around London, and she's thinking thinking. And one day she has some sort of um, revelation while she's in a shop and she realized that she wants to buy a cottage in the countryside and just live there and just have big nature walks and um and, that, and that's her plan and she makes her plan happen and then i think i'm gonna stop there because um, i don't know maybe you know, maybe I'll, i i'll say i don't want to spoil things for you uh trevor <laughs> but yeah maybe i'll stop there so um it's it's uh, yeah it's an amazing book because uh, the, the writing first is is beautiful. Um, it's very evocative, uh, uh, and um, yeah, I I like the fact that uh, Lolly Willows is a a person who has you know a plan, and she she's just going with her ideas no matter what her brother thinks. Her brother was quite against the idea of her living in the countryside on her own, and she. Yeah, the fact that she reflected on her life and what she wanted and went for it, I find that really um, inspiring.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you picked that one because I thought you might. And if you didn't, I was going to bring it up as an honorable mention. Mm Because like you said, there's always that fear of somebody who you think is just a given that somebody will mention and then none of us do. And all of a sudden it's like, no, we (laughs) should have mentioned her. So I'm glad you did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for me, she had to be mentioned in the, the next one as well because they're so... Like this so important for me and spinster related as general. Yeah. I, I did one. I call I called them my alpha spinsters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I have one like that too, later on. So well do you want me to go on with Yeah, next what one? is your next one? So this is probably my most controversial pick as far as the definition of spinsters. So you guys may just vote me off the island here. Um it's The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barbary. Um I don't know if either one of you have read this one but it's going to push our definitions of the word spinster because the character that I'm thinking of is an older unmarried woman of a certain age, but she's actually a widow. So I don't know if you think this counts or not. Um, I will kind of make,
2: Oh yeah. It's a discussion that we had on Instagram. Like what is it, is a divorced woman a spinster Mm -hmm. is a widow is a non a spinster. I mean, we all, Seem to have a difference, right? Way. I, I, for me, if I have to like go into the definition, I think the I, I wouldn't count widow as a spinster because I think a spinster need to have the ways of loneliness and judgment from society.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'll make my cases to why I think maybe. Oh, nope, sorry, be considered... it's been ruled on. It's been ruled oh, okay. on. Well, all right. Well, it, I, nope, I guess nope. it's your turn then, Trevor. My turn.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Go ahead.
1: Yeah, when we invited Nora on, I didn't know she would be like, you know, kicking me out here. But <laughs> She's the new co-host of. I no. <laughs> was so... my all along. <laughs> So this woman's name is Renee Michelle, and she's the concierge of this luxury apartment building on the left bank of Paris, where she's been working for decades. And she's a really fascinating character because her husband did die some time ago. And so to me, the reason that I thought it might apply that she could be, you know, a fit for this category is because she's had to redefine herself. And she's taken on this role and she's viewed in a certain way by the lodgers there. And she has this rich interior life that is not reflected in the facade that she kind of has created for herself in this role. So um, in order to kind of fit her role and to keep her job, she presents herself to the residents as kind of this lowbrow person who just, you know, watches bad television all day, you know, soap operas and game shows and things like that. So whenever somebody walks by her little office, that's kind of the impression they get. She's eating junk food and watching junk TV, basically. But as we read along, we get a true glimpse of this rich intellectual life that she actually has. She spends her days reading literature and philosophy and listening to opera, and she actually like, really likes these high-end you know, foods and things like that. So here's a section that I'll touch on that gives you a, a quick idea of her voice. She, she says, I've read so many books, and yet, like most autodidacts, I'm never quite sure of what I've gained from them. There are days when I feel I have been able to grasp all there is to know in one single gaze, as if invisible branches suddenly spring out of nowhere, weaving together all the disparate strands of my reading. And then suddenly the meaning escapes, the essence evaporates, and no matter how often I reread the same lines, they seem to flee ever further with each subsequent reading. And I see myself as some mad old fool who thinks her stomach is full because she's been attentively reading the menu. So I just love that. Anyway, I think all all of us as readers can probably... Relate to that, um, so it's very fascinating. Like I said, the outward appearance she gives, but then we get these glimpses into some of her insecurities. But also, just she is not this, you know, lowbrow kind of lonely person that she seems to be. She does have that rich intellectual life that we've been talking about, and and she has layers that no a lot of people from the outside wouldn't even think were there. So I really like that older that wrinkle of an older woman who seems very pedestrian but contains multitudes. Um, And then the other fascinating thing about this book is the relationship between her and Paloma, who is a 12-year-old girl who lives in the building. And this little girl is very disillusioned with the world she lives in. Um, She's grown up in a lot of privilege, and she calls it, quote, the vacuousness of bourgeois existence. And so based on that, she plans to commit suicide on her 13th birthday. Um, So she's in uh, obviously a bad place. But the two of them, through this relationship that is not saccharine at all, it's very Well done. They develop a relationship um, that I I just think is fascinating. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Tova Janssen's The Summer Book, where there's kind of the older, um, maybe grandma or maternal figure, and the the really young figure, and and this relationship that they have. So, you know, again, I don't know. It sounds like I might have just, you know, wasted my time for the last few minutes trying to make my case. But I do think whether this falls into the definition of a strict spinster or not. It does do a very nice job of detailing a woman of a certain age who is very fascinating to spend some time with.
2: It's right. a book I, I, I never read, but yeah, it's been, it's been on my radar. Yeah, well, yeah. I think, yeah, it, it does go into the conversation of, you know, a, a woman who has to find new ways to, to find meaning and connection with people mm-hmm. outside of family ties, right?
0: exactly yeah yeah and sometimes the best way to to kind of explore a topic is to look at the edges even if you may go over <laughs> that's what i thought a little bit. poke at <laughs> the
1: edges a little bit
0: yep <laughs> and my next one may maybe does that a little bit too um not not the same way pauls does i mean i, I think this yeah. is in bounds but um <laughs> just thinking about uh you know jane austen's novels you know uh you've got the, the miss bates and emma you've got uh, uh, who is a spinster and who is impoverished? I mean, there are some wealthy single women in Jane Austen, but many of them are not. And you've got Charlotte Lucas in *Pride and Prejudice*, who uh, goes forward with the uh, what we, we can only, you know, assume must be a rather lonely um, and a horrible marriage, uh, because in many ways society was was built to enforce the idea of what, um, should happen that w- a woman should marry. And if you don't, then you're, you're going to be kind of discarded and, uh, good luck. You know, hopefully you can, you can get some charity from your wealthy neighbors. And I don't think that this has, or had changed very much for a long time, um, I think it's a little different today, hopefully. Uh, but the book that I'm going to look at next is Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth, which is, again, a, a woman who, uh, in Lily Bart, who is maybe more trying to avoid becoming a spinster or is uh, fearsome of the life of a spinster, even though that might be what she really wants. She's 29, 30 years old or so in, in this novel over a couple of years. Um, she's, she's actually is a b- beautiful, desirable, you know, there are a lot of the wealthy men of New York society who are courting her and, and want to, um, you know, the, 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 I can't remember exactly, but I feel like there may have been, uh, plenty of uh, proposals or at least, you know, Hey, you, this would work for you. She doesn't really want them and she doesn't want to get married just to solidify her place in society. But. Her wealth is is running out. Her parents died and kind of left her with with nothing. Um, she just happens to have enough stature in society to play this role so long, but it's about to run out. And I just really like how it's not as simple as it seems for her to avoid marriage because she doesn't really want it. Um, the there's a place where it. Well, this social structure of this is your natural next place to be a wife. Um, otherwise, you, you really don't have any options. It's locked in place by essentially killing anybody who would oppose it. It, it. There's a quote that says, it was easy enough to despise the world, but decidedly difficult to find any other habitable region. There's, you know, if this is the world that it is, you, you live in it. Um, Lily can't simply go out and get a job. Um, she hasn't been raised to do labor for one thing. Um, so she may lack some of the basic skills, uh, but for another, even that wouldn't have been really livable, you know, uh, to, to, to go and and become a, a laboring woman in the factories and such of New York at that time, she may have survived longer. Um, you know, she may have lived longer, but the labor itself would have slowly killed her as well. Um. And so if she's going to be repudiated by society because she doesn't want to uh, wed any of these eligible bachelors, then, you know, what's going to happen? She's basically going to be um, pushed down the rungs of the ladder all the way to the bottom. And uh, this is a brutal society. Um, It was not received well uh, by a lot of Edith Wharton's readers (laughs) when it was published. Uh, But how, you know, I think it's just a, a powerful book that shows someone who is wants to have that independence, but the society itself is not going to forgive her for that. And especially someone like her, where everything else seems to be going for her. She has opportunity. She has um, the, the, the upbringing to fit in naturally with this. And yet she wants to repudiate it. Well, no, we're not going to allow that. It's a very you know mirthful book, uh, you right? Know, House of mirth, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But anyway, that one I think is a is a, a fascinating one. It was my wife who reminded me of of that uh, aspect of it, and I was excited to share some of my thoughts on it. Yeah,
1: well, that's great. I remember us having that conversation during our Jane Austen episode, where the pressures that society was putting on women at that time, in some ways, removed some of the potential independence from sheer economic, like, realities of if you wanted to survive Mm. in that. And that also was empowering in some of the Jane Austen novels because the women would, you know, still find strength and ways to make it work for themselves within these constrictions. But it definitely complicates this whole conversation.
2: Okay. Uh, Is it my turn? Yeah?
1: Yeah, go ahead, Nora. Thank you.
2: Okay. Uh, So my next one is The Prime of Miss Jean Brody by Mm. Iris Park. And um, this is uh, set in, uh, well, it's, it was written in 1961 and set in Edinburgh in the 30s. And we look at um, Jean Brodie, who is a teacher in a girls' school. And um, she is very much in the tradition of those mentor-type teachers, like I'm thinking, uh, like, someone like uh julian's secret history or john keating in the dead poet society those kind of teachers who are like larger than life and they sort of their they influence go further than the walls of school um but the thing is jim Brody is um is quite kind of a problematic character let's say and she she i, I don't think the the book mentions what to- topic she um she teaches but she uses her class as a sort of way to talk about her own ideas her own politics and talk about her own life she's like very much oversharing with with her like her pupils and she has this sort of manipulative way of picking them as their has her favorites she has what she calls her brody set, and she has this motto where she says give me a girl of an impressionable age and she's mine forever so you have this really strong fusional relationship between Brody and and the kids. And it, the the book follows her for six years and things, as you can imagine, escalate because she she's uh, she has wrong ideas, let's say that. And um I picked her because again, I think she really goes against that sort of trope uh, or stereotype idea we have a spinster of, of somebody meek and now see she's like completely flamboyant she knows what she wants and she will get it and she's completely charismatic you know that she she's a wrong one but you still mem- mesmerized by her
1: mm. yeah that is a great one it's another I one i'm glad it. that you brought up it's so good Unless I you hope said you it, were
0: like. Yeah. I, I had the benefit of seeing the the initials of, of uh, Nora and Paul's uh, authors, and so I was like, "Oh, I hope." I'm assuming Muriel Spark, maybe yeah. the prime of Miss G. Brody. I, I did write it day. down just in case, but uh, yeah. yeah, perfect. <laughs> if you don't mind, I, because I have a hard mm-hmm. out, listeners, I am going to go first, and then I'm gonna be I, I'm gonna be surprised when I come to edit at Paul and Nora's final books. All right, well, my last one um, that I picked, and I'm going a little bit out of order, as I said, but is maybe on the idea of the queer spinster, Nora. Uh, This is Tova Janssen's very short, lovely book, uh, Fair Play. And while it's never explicitly said that the two women who are the kind of protagonists in Fair Play they are older artist women, and they have been very comfortable. They they don't live in the same house, but they live in the same uh, kind of uh, I don't know if it's a townhouse or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but they're connected. And the book is them spending time together. Sometimes you know uh, talking about their paintings. Sometimes arguing. Sometimes uh, watching a movie together. And it's so it's such a beautiful dis- uh, description of friendship. That I, I know some people go, oh, there there may be more going on there. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's, um, it's uh, again, an explicit part of the book. Uh, but one way or the other, these are two women who have found each other and have given each other uh, comfort and friendship while they have also pursued a, a life outside of matrimony and motherhood and um, the, uh, the the life of artists and uh they have that that space to do it and they found somebody who is accepting of that space to do it um i i love uh fair play again it was i it, i i really enjoyed tove Janssen's other books the summer book is such a peaceful comforting yet somewhat threatening you know under the undercurrents kind of book um uh the true deceiver is is quite a different one but this one Jonna and mary the the two women's have just been happy for years to limit their society to each other on this uh, little island in on the southern side of Finland, and just looking back at my my uh, uh, the end of my my old thoughts on this, um, there is the potential for separation. They don't always get along, um, and they do maybe they're they're older. You know, I think they're in their sixties but they might still be looking for other things in life and this might just be a a time period for them and so there's the potential for separation but it's still to me a testament of stability and solidarity um that they they can be the rock for each other as they're they're going through this and, and any of the other potential transitions in in the future and so i i just thought that it was it's it's one of my favorite uh short little books and um I, I again I think it, it plays with the idea of the queer spinster, but definitely two spinster uh artists, which is another another way, you know, a lot of the um a lot of artists in books while, while they might not call them spinsters, um uh tend to be single women who um have chosen to to live outside of society, maybe in a way that's a little more well, that's just what you get when an artist uh, you know, with artists.
1: <laughs> right. So I'm glad you brought that one up. I, I have not read that one yet. I've read The True Deceiver and, and the mm. Summer Book and loved both. So, you talking about that makes me want to pick it up soon. It's sometime. a short one.
0: You could get through it in a couple of hours or probably an hour, nice. even. <laughs> yeah, Have you read great. any of those, Nora?
2: Toby I just Janssen? read the, uh, well, the Moons, obviously, and uh, the Summer Book as well. And uh, yeah, I think uh, Kip McNeil is doing a Toby Janssen soon. I don't know which one with the NYRB N- 23. It's,
0: yeah, her short story. stories. Oh, yeah. So yeah,
2: I'm, I'm excited to that for one.
1: that.
0: I am mm-hmm. too. All right. Well, with that, I will um, check in again. But Nora, thanks so much. It really has been nice to, yeah. to sit with you. Uh, and I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say
1: over the rest of the episode. Now's where we can say whatever we want to about Trevor. <laughs> All right. Well, my next book is um another one that i've mentioned before this author quite a few times and it actually ties in nicely with some of the themes that trevor just mentioned um both artists and the the queer spinster that you talked about and it is journal of a solitude by may sarton um this is a book that will surprise absolutely no one because she's another author I bring up you know seemingly every other episode or so, but she's one of those authors who just continues to come up and, and she comes up often in these discussions about spinsterhood. Um, you know She even has a novel called The Magnificent Spinster, which is one of my favorite book titles, I think, of all time. I love it. Um, but also she brings in this interesting, this is a journal, so it brings in this interesting aspect of her life as well. Um, so Sarton herself never married but she did meet a woman named Judy Matlick in 1945, who became her partner for 13 years. And so this is exploring that idea of of spinsterhood because of where her life leads. And, and what you talked about at the very beginning, Nora, this idea that it wasn't always that they were spinsters in the true um, stereotypical view of things, but it might have been because of pressures of society at the time that they weren't able to express themselves or to be open about the relationships that they had so it kind of thrust them into this this role of being viewed that way um, so I think you know again I've only read her journals and I every time I mention her on here I keep talking about how I want to read the novels and I've yet to do it but um, one of the things that I love so much about her journals are the candid examinations of of solitude loneliness but also creativity that idea of a spinster who she doesn't shy away from the realities of sometimes you are lonely. Sometimes you do feel an emptiness, but she also has a very rich, creative, artistic life. And so I love that idea of the fact that an aging woman, you know, who could be defined as a spinster can also be a font of art and intellect and all these complicated emotions, you know, not just Mary from, you know, it's a wonderful life where she's like that dowdy librarian who's rushing off home. It's like, no, there's all these other aspects that can be included. And so, like I said, this book in particular, Journal of the Solitude, reflects her interior life over the course of one year, it's the 60th year of her life. And it's absolutely just packed with great passages. So I'll just read real quickly here. Um, she says, the value of solitude, one of its values is, of course, that there's nothing to cushion against attacks from within just as there's nothing to help balance at times of particular stress or depression. A few moments of desultory conversation may calm an inner storm, but the storm, painful as it is, might have had some truth in it. So sometimes one has simply to endure a period of depression for what it may hold of illumination if one can live through it, attentive to what it exposes or demands. So that part, you know, it's it's grim and, and a little rough and some of her stuff is that way. But what I love about her journals is, again, she doesn't flinch away from those feelings. But then here's another quick passage. It says, it is raining. I look out on the maple where a few leaves have turned yellow and listen to Punch the Parrot talking to himself into the rain ticking gently against the windows. I'm here alone for the first time in weeks to take up my real life again at last. That is what is strange, that friends, even passionate love, are not my real life unless there's time alone in which to explore and to discover what is happening or has happened without the interruptions, nourishing and maddening, this life would become arid yet. I taste it fully only when I'm alone. And I just, Oh, passages like that just kill me. I I, so good because she's acknowledging there is that need for, you know, that's one of the things. Yeah. She has connections. She has friends. People drop in all the time. She has pets. She has, you know, and again, she did have this relationship, but, I really like that she talks about when she does get some time alone, how valuable it is. And that's when her quote unquote, real life actually begins. So yeah, I thought that was a good example, both from- It's weird
2: how some people need that time to sort of recalibrate or absorb what happened. And then other people just go through life like, yeah, they just need the action, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, mm. so I don't know. I, f- I forget. Nor have you read any of her, either her journals or her novels yet.
2: No, again, like uh, like Jhumpa Lahiri, mm-hmm. I sorry, Right, uh, very, it's, she's very difficult to find here um, mm. in charity shops. But I did find her. Um, I think it's a journal at eighty-two mm-hmm. uh, when I was in Belfast a few months ago. So that would be my only one, my next one, and only one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah. Well. I haven't, She's one that I, I do think, like you said, she has at 70, at 82. There's one after the stroke. There's one plant dreaming deep. So her journals in particular, again, that's my experience, but they definitely explore her inner life and a lot of these topics that we're talking about today. So as you she make sounds, your way through, I'd love to hear you. Yeah, she yeah. is. Well, great. Well, did you want to share your, your last pick?
2: Yeah, sure. So my last pick is a bit of a wild card. I don't think that it could really qualify as spinster, spinsterless. And I'm kind of worried that I'm going to bit blasphemous that I'm qualifying as as, as is. Well, and after,
1: also, oh, after yeah. I did that with Elegance of the Hedgehog, you know, I took the pressure off of you. So now we can just push it all the boundaries <laughs> we want to.
2: <laughs> it's just that it's an author that has so many scholars. So I'm feeling like I'm treading dangerous waters mm. here. But yeah, my last pick is The Dead by James Joyce. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you read that they one. I
1: have, I love it.
2: Yeah it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's my favorite So I, I haven't read that much from him, but that's my favorite uh, short story slash novella of him. And this was uh, written in 1914, and it happens during one evening on the 6th of January, which is the night of the epiphany, which is an important word in that story. And um, in in Ireland, actually, the epiphany is not celebrated in the same way as as it is in the rest of Europe on the 6th of January, you would celebrate celebrate what they call women's Christmas, which is, an, I think, an important detail in the story, considering that it uh, involves three spinsters, maybe four, but yeah, three, three spinsters for sure. And those three spinsters are uh, Jane, uh, is it Mary, no, Mary Jane, Kate, and oh, I can't remember the last one. But yeah, there's two sisters and their niece. They're having a little party for women's christmas it is a lovely festive uh, setting uh, during that that novella and there we, we meet them as they are at the, um, the bannister and they're waiting for their nephew gabriel and he's late he's 10 o'clock and they're quite agitated because obviously they want to see him but also he's the one who sort of uh, can tame freddie who's one of their friends who's always drunk and they, they don't want to deal with the awkwardness of the drunk the drunk guests so that, that's very much the setting and you spend the whole evening with them and you know, you have the festive meal and the cutting of the goose and, and the pudding and, and all that. And the reason why I, I bring that up I, uh, is for two reasons. Um, even though those, three, those two sisters and this niece is, are not the main characters, I think Gabriel, their nephew is the main character, their spinsterhoods have an important role in the story but also in the sort of historical creation of that novella um there at the end of the story i'm not I'm, I'm trying i'm gonna try not spoil it but gabriel has his epiphany and when he does he starts thinking about his aunt and how you know she, she's been singing that song during that meal and how she's lonely and maybe she'll die soon and i think the fact that she's, she's a spinster and she's never found love And that she'll die alone in her bed, sort of externalize a sort of thought he has that maybe he himself has passed um like aside a chance for love as well. So Mm -hmm. I think yeah, there's Spencerhood is seemed quite important that story, but also I feel like James Joyce is telling us when you compare Gabriel in his hotel at the end of the story, and the hotel is so cold and you compare that to that house where the sisters lived, which is so warm festive and full of friends. I think James Joyce is telling us that there's a way to have a full life as, as a spinster. And the, uh, the last reason why I think their spinsterhood and maybe that's, that their spinsterhood is uh, important—that's probably need, it's probably wishful thinking—is that um, you know the reason of that uh, of. Th- the the collection Dubliners was kind of made in in a conversation that Ireland was having at the time where uh, there was a desire to have like a unifying identity a national identity around culture and yes culture was an important one to unify that spirit and also values and during that evening there's loads of mentions of the Irish culture with, with poems and songs so Gabriel does a speech um, uh, in honor of, you know, the hostess, the hostesses, the sisters, and they say that they represent uh, an, an old-fashioned Irish value, which is hospitality. There is a representation of that value that is so important for that country and as as an, a form of identity. Um, so I think. I don't know, maybe it's silly, but I think James Joyce is telling us that maybe spinsters were important for the fabric of society in Ireland in a way that can unify the people because they have this space where they could organize gatherings. You know, these gatherings that they organized, there are so many kind of people with different religions and ideas and, you know, cultural interests, but still they managed to have a a great evening and talk together.
1: I love that. I hadn't thought about that, but I I think you're exactly right. I I remember because I read that within the last year, I reread it. And I do remember what you just described is this is something that people look forward to. This is a well-known yearly event where these sisters host and it's something people look forward to. People come from all over the city. Like you said, it's a variety of voices and faces. And so I think what you just described is perfect. It's these two women who could have been shoved aside or pushed aside, but instead they've become a central part of the year and they are connectors and playing an, a vital role in the society. So no, I, I don't think you're reaching at all. I love that. I haven't thought about that aspect of the story. So I'm really glad you You mentioned that. Yeah, I, I feel,
2: feel like cool. the fact that you picked three spinsters and um, possibly more, i wonder if that, you know, that teacher Mary Ivers, is, is she possibly is a spinster too. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's, it might not be a coincidence. There's something yeah, about their status. And yeah, they, I think it gives a, a positive spin to their life. Like you said, they're like a, a connector. Uh, but also, it's not all rainbow and, and glitters. Uh, I think there's a bit in, in the novella where one of the sisters is quite hurt by the fact that she's been rejected by the choir, she's been given whole, all her life to. So there's, there's the aspect that it's, it's a complicated life, but a life that can be, that can be rich and fulfilling as opposed to Gabriel who has who had everything. He had the kids, he had the wife, and still he's in that lonely cold hotel looking at the snow falling.
1: No, I, I love that. That's a really, that's a great pick. Well, this has been wonderful. I guess before we go, before we wrap up, are there any other, you know, honorable mentions or, you know, anything else that you wanted to mention? I, can pull up a couple that I wanted to mention here in a second, but it, if you have anything that comes to mind.
2: Yeah, I I think, as, as we said in, at the beginning of, of the show, it's kind of worried that we didn't mention Annie, Anita Bruckner or Barbara Pym. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they're like sort of pillars uh, in, in that kind of literature, but it's not they, they are not authors I'm over-familiar with. Uh, as I said, I just started my Barbara Pym journey, and I only read Hotel du Lac by mm-hmm. Anita Bruckner. And um, yeah, and, and I wonder as well, is, isn't is Jean Rhys uh, someone that could have been mentioned as well? Yeah,
1: I agree. I think she would be another one. I've only read, um, I think one of hers, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think she would be a great one to bring up. And then I was also thinking about like, we have always lived in the castle. I don't know if you've read that one, but I think yeah, one, I did.
2: But yeah, you
1: know. if I'm not mistaken, I think that one could could apply pretty well because the two sisters are kind of you know viewed from the outside as these very eccentric, you know, and, and in fact they are <laughs> pretty eccentric. But I thought that that one would be one that would at least be one we. Oh no, mention. actually, I didn't
2: read that one. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, I've I heard about it. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and then another one that came up that I was thinking about, and I don't. It's been a while since I've read this one, so a few of these might be pushing the boundaries again. But the book Convenience Store Woman by yeah. Sayaka Murata. Um,
2: I think that's that's a great pick actually because um, it's it's seen through a like modern lens. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So I thought those if if readers are or excuse me if listeners are thinking about some other ones to explore, those two came to mind, and then the last one, Cassandra at the wedding, I thought was another one that.
2: Um, I I thought about that one, but she's quite young, isn't she? She, she is like,
1: quite young, and that's why I wasn't okay. sure. It's more about yeah. the mentality, I guess, of like. The fierce independence, but yeah.
2: Also, it could be like queer spinster because yeah. she's gay, right? yes yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. So those were just a few that came up, but um yeah. Well, it's been so wonderful talking to you. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to say in closing.
2: No, I mean it's been such a wonderful time, like talking books with you and to meet you. And you were, uh, you know, when they say don't meet your heroes, I think they're wrong because it was really lovely. <laughs>
1: oh, well, thank you. It's definitely mutual, and I, I wanted to just again emphasize how much I love your Instagram videos your Sunday book chats are just always such a nice way to start off the week and if there's anybody out there listening who's not familiar with Nora and her wonderful posts I would encourage you we will include all of her information in the show notes I would absolutely encourage you to look it up and and get to know her because she is a great reader and as you can tell from the the past hour she has a lot of wonderful things to say so we will wrap up for now but we will see everybody next time and thank you again Nora so great to chat with you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.